Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. We record each episode immediately after we watch each film. I'm Adam Yerrick, along with Jim Massessa. Today's episode features The Breakfast Club. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. What happens when five strangers end up together in Saturday detention? Badass posturing, gleeful misbehavior, and a potent dose of angst. With this exuberant, disarmingly candid film, writer-director John Hughes established himself as the bard of American youth, vividly and empathetically capturing how teenagers hang out, act up, and goof off. The Breakfast Club brings together an assortment of adolescent archetypes. The uptight popular girl, Molly Ringwald, the stoic jock, Emilio Estevez, the foul-mouthed rebel, Judd Nelson, the virginal bookworm, Anthony Michael Hall, and the kooky recluse, Ali Sheedy, and watches them shed their persona and emerge into unlikely friendships. With its highly quotable dialogue and star-making performances, this exploration of the trials of adolescence became an era-defining pop culture phenomenon, one whose influence now spans generations. This movie came out in 1985. It's 97 minutes long. It's in color. The audio is monorial. And it's 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. And if you're following along at home, this is a newer release. It's number 905. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, we're doing this episode, too. I wanted to give a shout-out because it was a request that we got uh, a DM on Instagram from Joe in San Diego, who said he was a huge fan oh, hey, Joe. of the podcast and uh, said he's listened to every episode. He's actually gone back and listened to a few episodes twice. Ooh. So that's actually kind of cool. We got I some, got some fans now. <laughs> you don't have me. I don't either. He's, oh, yeah, so that's cool. So uh, yeah, thanks uh, for writing us in, Joe. Uh, yeah. Got a big fan there in San Diego. Yeah, so I, I mean, I've I've seen this movie several times. Mm-hmm. I actually own a regular Blu-ray version of it. I don't know that there is like there was much difference between the print of this film versus an an old one. I think I looked that up, and there really was no. They, they might have like they restored it, but yeah. from the reviews I was reading, it didn't seem as though there was a lot of like major changes it's not the type of film that probably was in disrepair it's on tv all the time yeah that's true so that would be the one thing though i think a lot of people probably have seen this movie on tv versus seeing it like Mm. the way it was meant to be presented not only that but this is one of those movies that you see a lot again on tv it's censored so there's scenes that are probably cut out definitely a language that's removed that sometimes i even forget that you know they drop like that you know they say the f word and stuff like that in the movie because you always see like they say I, the I other see F, the, scenes the other F word as yeah, well, well, which is no longer things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of deleted scenes on the bonus features here too. I, I watched those, and there's a there's a really great scene uh, with Carl the janitor. It's it would have almost doubled his lines. There's a whole section where after he comes in and he's like taking the garbage out, and he says like, "I listen to your conversations. You don't know that, but I do." I am the eyes and ears of this institution, my friends. And then he goes, he goes into this speech where he's like, I know where you are now, and I know where you'll be in the future. And he goes through each one of the five kids and says, like, like he looks at Bender, he's like, You get ten years, Max. That's right. <laughs> Drugs, run-down trailer in West Texas. Your whore bitch wife takes the kid, splits. You shoot a fatal dose. Game over. <laughs> Dogs eat your carcass before the cops arrive. They don't even know who you are. Brian becomes like the CEO of a company, but he's miserable and he hates his life. And he like goes through all the characters. And then he says, 
By the way, that clock's 20 minutes fast. I don't know why they cut it out. It was, huh. it was a great scene. Maybe yeah. a little dark. I feel like that's definitely really dark. Well, what's interesting about Carl is, and that you say that they had like the deleted scenes. Um, was that the only one with him that they expanded his presence in the film? or There might have been another scene down in the basement when him and Vernon are talking. Just like made it, yeah, like more of their conversation. Yeah. Well, because if you, and I, this was the very first time watching this movie that I noticed this. When the opening's going and they're showing all the clips, is a picture of him. Yep. And it says, like, Man of the, Men of the Carl. Year. Yeah, Carl. Carl, a picture of Carl in a high school, like, display case with a group of other kids. Uh, like a portrait of him from when like, he's younger. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. got hair. He, you know, that's kind of what's. It's just when you were saying, oh, they had deleted scenes. I was curious if they. Right. There's no mention of that. To me, it was such a quick thing that it's easy to miss because I feel like seeing that changes your perception of him and kind of cements you into that into that scene more. Like, you want to know what your future is? I'll tell you what your future right. is. And like, he was probably the, you know, the Emilio Estevez or the Molly Ringwald of of the school when he was there, and now he cleans up after those kids. Yeah. So that's all. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think he was, he's kind of, the, uh, kind of the reality of this movie. Like, he speaks, he's the one character who's kind of consistently speaking the truth. Yeah, he's grounded in this, in yeah. this film. Like, he's definitely, you know, because even, even Vernon is, he's in his own little world there. So I went back and forth with this. Vernon, they never call him principal. When Carl talks to him, he says something like, You took a teaching position because you thought it'd be fun, right? Thought you could have summer vacations off. So he's kind of referencing like more of a teaching position. I didn't quite understand. Like, is he supposed to be the principal or just like a a teacher? I don't know that it necessarily matters. I mean, he could be any form of administrative official and think he'd be like the dean of students, a vice principal, whatever. A lot of principals are teachers and they become principal after teaching for a certain amount of time. I think very few people come out of school and get certified to be a principal or whatever and then immediately become one without any teaching experience so well per wikipedia and i don't know if this is correct he is his official title is disciplinarian school assistant principal that's not mentioned anywhere in the movie i feel like any vice principal's job is pure like their job is just to be disciplinarian yeah thinking back to high school that's pretty much what our we only had one vice principal but that was what her uh role pretty much came in to be is that she was just purely a disciplinarian did she enjoy her job as much as Vernon did? Because he really seems to love disciplining students. I don't know. Uh, I don't. I I interacted with her a little bit. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. What was her name? Linda Mesterkowitz. Oh, we might. Do we have to edit that out? No, but you can imagine what people called her in school. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, I never was in her office getting disciplined in high school, but right. I know a few people who were. She definitely. She was like maybe like five one, but every of course any kid who had gotten detention from her yelled at her hated her because that's just how it was just like the relationship between you can see that too the relationship between vernon and bender judd nelson's character you could see that and i'm sure most people could think back to high school and recognize that kid that who you know bender was and the relationship they always seemed to have with teachers was an adversarial one even teachers who would be cool teachers somehow some kid one of those kids would manage to you know screw that type of thing up it's interesting that we only ever see one teacher or the principal. There's no adult in this movie, maybe Carl, that's considered like cool or likable. Like you were just talking about the cool teacher. There's none of that in this movie. So when we hear the students talking about how terrible adults are or their parents are, there's really no other character 
that can kind of give us an alternate view that, yeah, they're not all bad. Yeah, it's the thing of it being a Saturday detention. Which, eight hours for Saturday detention? That's crazy. Nine hours. When they got there, he said there was like eight hours and 50-some minutes left. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, that's crazy. That's longer than a regular school day, right? No, I guess not. Uh, No, that would be... Yeah, I guess... No, I feel like that's longer than a school day. It's still, it's, it's crazy. That, and that's he's giving up his Saturday, too. To well, that was the other thing, too. He's for $31,000. Yeah. Right. Well, it was, what, 1985? Yeah, sure. so. And he owns a house. There you go. Uh, we did election before this. Yes. Because it was, you know, doing, like, two high school films back-to-back is kind of an interesting thing to, having seen that film, where we see over a long period of time, of course, the course of high school, and following a teacher and a student as our main characters. And another election connection ooh, election connection i like that that's good uh matthew broderick is one of the main characters in election ali sheedy is the main character in this movie and they were boyfriend girlfriend in another 80s movie war games boom nice joshua nice nice yeah <laughs> love war games that's a great movie yeah there was a uh, did you see the poster in the beginning of this movie when they're doing all those shots around the high school there was a poster that said hackers will be expelled Oh, really? It made me think of Nice. That's cool. So we, we see the picture of Carl, and there's a shot. If you never saw the movie before, you don't really think much of it, but there's a row of lockers, and one of the lockers is open, and there's all this like melted garbage hanging out of it. Yeah. Which we learn later that Brian had brought a flare gun to school, and it went off in his yeah, locker. Yeah. You know what? I didn't make that connection until right now, but yeah. Yeah. yeah that's you would true. think they would have cleaned it up by then, but. Guess not. Friday. Maybe it happened all this happened Friday. They have a lot of weird did lockers we ever, in this. Did we ever find out what Judd, what um, Bender did to get in? Do we just assume that he just I, did his standard stuff to get into detention? Like it's, he's a regular? That's what I thought at first. There is a, when him and Vernon are having one of their fights, he said something about like, Everything's a big joke, huh, Bender? The false alarm you pulled Friday. False alarms are really funny, aren't they? Oh, right, right. Yeah, he pulled, yeah, he pulled the fire alarm. Yeah. They don't really like get into it no but that was enough to and Ali Sheedy the only thing she really says is that she didn't have anything better to do so was that her real reason she's there she just had nothing better to do or she's still lying and we never know I don't know everyone else kind of talks about it yeah true but her parents dropped her off so maybe maybe she did of all the characters there she's might be the saddest character because she had to ask her parents she told her parents she had Saturday detention so yeah. she could get out of having to stay at home on a Saturday and come in for detention to be away from her parents for eight hours, which is crazy. She does say that... They ignore me. Right. Yeah. So maybe she just told them, I have detention, to try to get yeah, some attention. Yeah, out of them. And, and they just yeah. were like, well, we'll drop you off. <laughs> and when they drop her off, they don't even turn to look at her. She gets out of the car. No, she has to like, look in the window. They're looking straight ahead, and they just drive yeah. off. Hmm. Yeah, uh, so... That's Ali, that's Bender, Andrew, Emilio Estevez. He's in for beating up a kid and, like, taping him together in a locker room. Yeah, taping Larry, was it, um, yeah. Larry Lester's butt cheeks. Do you guys know what, uh, what I did to get in here? I taped Larry Lester's buns together. <laughs> that was you? And then, um, yeah, the flare gun, and then what was, uh... Claire? Claire in for? So in the beginning of the movie when her dad is dropping her off and she's saying like, can't you get me out of this? He says, 
something about like honey ditching class to go shopping doesn't make you a defective but there was a deleted scene when they're all when all the kids are sitting together like in that circle talking about stuff where she goes into more details and basically her and one of her friends stole a uh, student driver car from the school and drove hmm. to the mall to go shopping and then on the way back well, we were driving out of the department store, and uh, we were, I don't know, going about 50, and I was trying on my new Ralph Lauren shade of lipstick, and she was eating. I thought she was driving, and she thought I was driving. You know, the car has a special set of controls, and um, nobody was driving, and we hit a mailbox. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. I mean, like, all this mail went flying out all over the place. The car was totaled. That's kind of a, yeah. That, that seems almost... like way, way worse than just ditching school. And I could see why they deleted the scene from the movie because I feel like that would change the perception. They call her the princess. So that makes her seem like she just cares about shopping. Whereas stealing a car, Bender is supposed to be like the criminal. Right. So they can't have her do that as well. Yeah. Although now it kind of makes sense with what happens, how the two of them kind of get together at the end, that she's kind of has that in her personality. So she leans in and kisses him on the neck. Right. And he says, why'd you do that? And he said, or she says, because I knew you wouldn't. The whole movie, he's kind of making a show of he's a bad guy, he's a tough guy, but he he never, he doesn't really do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, she's like, yeah, everything you do is just a show. Like he keeps making these sexual innuendos about her, but she knows like he's not actually going to do anything. If she wanted to kiss him, she has to be the one to kiss right, him. Right, right. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know. She's one of the few people that actually called his bluff. I guess Emilio uh, Andrew kind of does when he wrestles him to the ground. Yeah, no, he does. I think it's, you know, he's setting himself up like, oh, he's a super tough guy. And he kind of gets stressed down pretty quickly at the beginning. Yeah. And then he's like, well, yeah, I don't, I don't want to fight you because I'd kill you. Yeah, I just love how he, like, takes his knife out and everyone's scared and he puts it there and you just see Ali Sheedy's hands come in and just, like, steal the <laughs> knife. And nothing's ever said it for the rest of the movie about he doesn't, he's like, not, he's never like, where's my knife or... Go yeah. look for it. So was he taking the knife out as a threat, or was he like, I don't need this knife to fight you? I think he was doing both. Mm. Like saying, I had this knife in my pocket when, you, when I slapped you. Oh. You know, I could stab you if I wanted to. Yeah. But, and then by stabbing it in there, saying like, I've got this, but I don't need it. Like, I don't need to use it to beat you up. So it is like an intimidating thing if he's saying like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's the one who has supposedly the most abusive home life, too. They do talk about them becoming their parents. So he seems the most aggressive towards everybody else. What's cool about this movie is that right away at the beginning, they, the interactions and lack of interaction that the kids have with their parents is kind of sets up each of the characters perfectly. Right. So they walk in and you know immediately who they are, you know, without having to try to figure it out, especially with um, uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character, Ryan, right? Right. Um, uh, Brian. Brian, right. And um cuz they call him the brain. Brian. Oh right. And uh just him, you know, his mom's like you figure out a way to study. Like it's set up that he's And yeah. I love how his little sister's like, "Yeah." <laughs> and his story is kind of the most relatable, I think, to a lot of just your average high school student because he has the most pressure. It's well, so Andrew has pressure from his dad about sports. His story seemed a little strange to me that he beat up Larry because of his dad. He was sitting in the locker room and he's basically been 
a good kid up to this point. Like he he hasn't acted out or right. pranked people or done any crazy stuff. And he was saying like I sit you know I sit at home and my dad goes on and on and on about how all the crazy stuff that he did in school. He's always going off about you know when he was in school, all the wild things he used to do. And I got the feeling that he was disappointed that I never cut loose on anyone, right? And, you know, he basically, he never did any of that type of thing. And so he was sitting there, and, he, and then he said about his dad, uh, you know, about the weakness, you know, like how his dad talks oh. about the weakness. He's kind of, he's kind of skinny. He's weak. And I started thinking about my father and his attitudes about about weakness. And the next thing I knew, I, I jumped on top of him and, and started wailing on him. And then the next thing you know, he was taping his butt cheeks together. Well, he says, like, he jumped on him first. It sounds yeah. like he beat well, him up. Probably. He probably beat him up or held him down or, like, knocked him down, knocked him around a little bit and to tape his butt cheeks together. Emilio Estevez, I think he gave the most poignant speech in the middle of the movie where yeah. he's actually actually remorseful about what yeah. he did and he doesn't think there's any way he can make that right. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, I think he's actually a good guy. Yeah. He's just under the pressure of being an athlete and it's one of those scenarios of a dad living vicariously through his son right. from an athletic perspective of who knows what his dad did. And Do you think he was typecasted because... Out of these actors, he does have the famous dad, so he's probably been compared to his dad a lot. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I've never really heard a lot of them comparing acting-wise to... Yeah. Even even Charlie Sheen, too. I don't know that people have really ever... Right, right. He really looks like Martin Sheen in this movie. He does, yeah. Yeah. The speech that Anthony Michael Hall, Brian, is giving in the middle where he's talking about how he brought the gun to school... And he's kind of like crying. I, I did not buy that crying. I kind of did because of the way he like kind of held his, he put his face into his arm and he yeah. didn't look up and he was like, he was embarrassed about the fact that he was crying. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I bought him crying. I buy that the character would be crying there. Just you don't think as an actor, was? I didn't think his, his crying was that great. That's true. I mean, I don't know that Anthony Michael Hall is really that great of an actor. I mean, if you consider well, I mean, bunch of movies that he's been in. Maybe he's probably like science. 15 or 16 here. So, I mean, but for compare, a 15 or 16 year old, that's... compared to the acting performance of everyone else in that film, who's probably in similar age yeah. to him still, though, I'm just saying, looking at the breadth of Anthony Michael Hall's work, he's really not, I would consider a top tier actor. Well, I mean, I used to watch The Dead Zone on USA, not right, saying right. that that was an amazing show, but it was an amazing show. And he wasn't really the greatest actor in that movie. I mean, even his, when he was in Psych, he was in like maybe seven or eight episodes. Right. He was okay. But he was probably like 40 in that, 40, 50. I don't think he was a a bad actor. It was just that one part I didn't really buy. I did like that. So Judd Nelson's character is supposed to be very threatening. He's not like physically threatening anybody except for that little confrontation between him and Emilio Estevez. Right. But... You never really see Brian looking scared from Bender. He's almost just clueless. Brian just doesn't pick up on a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think he wants, like, he's, he's just trying to be friendly to everyone. Right. I think it's like a defense mechanism where he's not scared. He's just, like, trying to participate. 
he's probably the one kid who actually knows who all those people are. That's true. Because the cool kids don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. They know who Bender is because Bender's the troublemaker and Benderman knows who they are because he's a troublemaker and he he looks down on those people. But he would ignore. I mean, maybe maybe he doesn't know who Ali Sheedy is, but still, uh, it seems like no one knows who she is, her character is. Right. You know, I think that's where he's like, there's two cool kids in here. And so he's just trying to prevent himself from getting stuffed into a locker. So if he tries to be friends with the tough guy. Yeah, he does try to break up the fight between Bender and Andy. Yeah. What you were just saying about him knowing all those characters kind of goes to what Claire says later on when Brian's asking, you know. So on Monday, what happens? Are we still friends, you mean? And she is saying how, like, no, she's being honest. No, they're not. And talking about the pressure from her friends. And he says, I just want to tell each of you that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't and I will not. Your friends wouldn't mind because they look up to us. You're so conceited. I mean, she was right, though. I mean, they give her crap for it, but she was correct. But he even tells her, exception of the following, With the exception of everything that happens after that scene, which I think cements them more as friends. Yeah. If if the detention would have ended there, I don't think that you would have seen them uh, interact with each other after that. Yeah, I mean, the question really is, like, are are they still friends on Monday? I think they are. The part that really bothered me the most in this movie, after they go through that whole, like, friendship bonding experience, after that, Claire is kind of sweet-talking Brian to get him to write the essay for all of them. Oh yeah, no. She's and still taking advantage of him. She still is, I think, and and she's definitely she's taking advantage of uh, of Bender too. She's using him to get back at her parents. Well, with the exception of the fact that he knows right, full well what's right. going on, so he's going along with it. You know, taking advantage of the situation. She's still being manipulative in that sense, even though he says like, "Oh, you know, I would be the perfect person to, yeah. you know, to rile your parents up." Yeah. So she gets Brian to write the paper, and then while he's writing the essay, the other four characters all pair off, kind of like right. couples. Well, yeah, kind of. Well, no, 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 because um, she leaves, and then Andrew, Emilio Estevez's character, he just sits on the bookshelf, and Anthony Michael Hall's like halfway done with that essay by the time Ali Sheedy kind of walks out. Yeah, but he still kind of ends up with her at the end. He gives her his, well, yeah. his letter jacket. Well, no, she rips the patch off his shoulder. <laughs> But he gives, like, when they're outside, yeah, no, she they has all it give each other some sort of token. So, when I first saw this, it kind of bothered me that Allison had to change her appearance and now suddenly Agreed, everybody yeah. likes her. But I think it was one of the interviews and the special features. Somebody else had brought that up as well to Ali Sheedy. And she said, Yeah, but you know, all the characters have changed themselves by the end. Allison changed her physical appearance, Bender is kind of softening himself a little bit. So is like Andy, Brian's kind of becoming a little tougher. They all changed themselves to be accepted by that group a little bit. The other thing was that Allison, the only reason she was letting Claire do that was because she felt safe with her, like they were friends. Right. Consider that it's not necessarily that she changed her appearance to look more like Claire. She just cleaned herself up. Yeah. Because... In they the beginning of the movie, she really... was right. She was wearing a lot more makeup, and she essentially just took it off and like refined it. But also, she did two things. One, I mean, she didn't like wash her, but clearly, she 
was had not washed her hair in a long time because she shook her hair to get dandruff to make it look like snow on her drawing. The, I think the part that kind of buys you out of the whole, oh, it's like was a physical appearance change and she needed to look like every other popular girl for yeah. Andrew to notice. He says, Just so different. see your face. Is that good or bad? Because if you think about it, the whole movie, her hair is in front of her face. Yeah. For the most part. Now, to us watching the movie, we can see her. We know who, who she is. But from the character's perspective, he's maybe looking at her and he just sees hair. Like, he sees her face, but it's just mostly hair in front of her face. So to him, it's like he sees her for who, what she really looks like, and he likes that. You're saying that he would have thought she was beautiful the whole time. He just couldn't see her. Right. Or he wasn't, he wasn't really noticing her because she had her, like, grungy hair dropped down in front of her face. Yeah. I think it's less that she had makeup on, like, that her makeup was done like Claire's, and more that she just pulled her hair back. Yeah, I guess. I feel like if they hadn't put her in like a pink shirt in that too, I would have been Well, where did she get okay the pink with... shirt though? I, I think the pink shirt was in her bag. I think that was one of the things that was in her bag when she dumped it out. Oh, maybe. Claire clearly didn't have a change of clothing in her purse. Yeah. yeah so I, I really think it was her. She had, there was like socks and stuff. You know, you mentioned her drawing and then like shaking her dandruff on the drawing. She's supposed to be this like very dark, almost gothy girl and she's drawing these pictures of snow-covered bridges yeah like wh- why didn't they have her drawing something more dark because i don't think she is a dark gothy girl i think she's but that's what she wants people to think she's giving off that and she even says something like she that just wants too. to be invisible i think that's the whole thing she's invisible at home so she just carries that persona when she goes to school to be invisible in school mm. but you know she's she, she does a talented for the artist. first half of the movie she doesn't really say almost anything she makes some squeaky noises and she, yeah. there's a part where the principal's asking them who who shut the door and she just yeah ducks into the hood of her yeah. jacket when they're dancing and they're all kind of dancing by themselves she kind of like slithers down to the floor that's the yoga child pose uh, she's like face down arms to her side huh they all kind of dance like uh charlie brown characters too they do dance like, like charlie brown standing characters. in place like bobbing their head well i do remember um them making fun of that on psych I don't think they ever did it in an episode, but they used to do the psych outs after after the end of each episode where they would like start, they would have a song play or whatever. But there's an episode where they, this music starts playing and they all start dancing like that from um, Charlie Brown's, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas where they're like with their hands out and like (laughs) putting their heads to the side, like their hands out. We should try to find at least a link to the Charlie Brown Christmas dance. I don't know if we'll be able to find the psych outs, put that in the show notes. Were all of these characters on episodes of psych? All but Emilio Estevez. From having uh, listened to an interview once with James Roday, who played Sean on Psych, he said he was the only one they could never get. Scheduling was just always an issue, and they oh. could never get him to be on an episode. I think it might have been part of that, and part that like he doesn't really act anymore. He's mostly That's a director. True. That's true. And I think they actually tried to get him just to direct an episode, and I don't think they could even pull that off. I believe John Hughes directed an episode of Psych. I think he directed an early episode of Psych before he died. I'm pretty sure he did. But he died during while psych was on he didn't die before the show aired but yeah every actor in the breakfast club except sorry except for the actor who played vernon i don't know about the janitor i don't know if i feel like he was in an episode of psych but i don't know that for sure but obviously miley ringwald was in it she was like nurse ratchet in the one flew over the cuckoo's nest episode that they did and ali sheedy was of course was she the yang the yang killer 
Spoilers. Ying. I think oh, I think whatever. you spoiled that on another of our episodes. If you haven't watched Psych from beginning to end at this point and you listen to this podcast, you need to stop listening <laughs> to this episode. Go watch all eight seasons of Psych and then come back to where we are right now because that show is amazing. And you would like it if you like The Breakfast Club. Judd Nelson was the weird doctor in the like outbreak episode that they did and Anthony Michael Hall was in the end of the show. He was the uh, he was like the replacement chief. Uh, when they were like rebooting, when they uh, oh, the chief yeah, got yeah, like suspended right. or put on leave or something like that. So yeah, he's like the tough. Chief. He was in the most of all of the characters. Um, he was in the most episodes. I think even more than Ali Sheedy because she comes back at certain points. But yeah, yeah. On the bonus features on the Blu-ray, they had a interview with Molly Ringwald that was taken from a This American Life podcast episode. I believe the episode number is five twenty-six. If it'll be in the show notes, anyone wants to listen to it. They were interviewing Molly Ringwald about this movie and how. Her daughter had never seen this movie, and a lot of Molly Ringwald's daughter's friends would want to watch this movie at like sleepovers. And her daughter kept saying, No, I don't want to watch it because she didn't want to see her mom in this. So finally, Molly Ringwald sat down with her daughter and watched it together. And they record it for the episode of This American Life so you can hear them talking about it. It's really good. There's, I'll have to check that I out. Mean, That's kind of cool. She asks her daughter at one point which of the characters she relates to the most. And her daughter says, Brian, which I feel like most people would say Brian. Mm-hmm. And she asks her why. And she says, because, you know, you put pressure on me about school. And her daughter starts crying. It was pretty intense. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. You can see, like, even years later, these characters are still very relatable. I mean, they're picking very classical tropes of characters. Right. But it is kind of true that you could probably relate with one of these types. And it's nice that. They're not really pitting them against each other. By the end of the movie, you're rooting for everybody to have a good life. It's not like, yeah, it's all these people versus Judd Nelson. You feel bad for him, too. Like, you're hoping that his life gets better. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. I think, uh, what is it he says? At the, that's kind of the famous line in the letter. He says um, that they say, like, as the movie starts and as it ends, that, you know, you see us as you want to see us. Oh, and they all name their types? Right. And which I always ask people, especially when topics like this come up. And so I'll ask you at your high school, when you went to high school, did you have, especially when you think about all of the high school movies that are out there, mm-hmm. like Mean Girls or like all of these like high school clicky, you know, where they have the clicks and things like that and the stereotypes. Yeah, we had Lindsay Lohan. That's what you're going to ask. No, no, no. But oh. even if you think of it like um, 10 Things I Hate About You or those like 90s high school movies. Right. Was your high school like that? Did you have like clear delineated cliques where in the lunchroom, the jocks sat with the jocks and the, the geeks sat with the geeks and the goths sat with the goths and like it was like it was clear like and none of those cliques really interacted with each other in those ways? I don't know about in the lunchroom. There were definitely... Well, not just in the lunchroom. I just mean, I yeah. use the lunchroom as a thing, but just in general, were there clear cliques? I don't know about as defined as you would see in a movie. There were definitely different groups. Like, I was in the band. There was a lot of band kids that hung together or chorus kids. And sometimes those groups didn't mix. Sometimes they did because they were both music, but not necessarily. There were definitely all the sports people that hung together. But even there, to me, I just saw them all as like the sports kids. But, you know, there's probably a group that just played baseball or football. I think when you're outside of groups like that, it's easy to just see and categorize, ah, those are the jocks. But if you're within something like that, you're like, well, yeah, but I'm not friends with all the other sports people. I'm only, I really only hang out with people that are on my team. 
that that's what's always interesting because I guess just from my experience in my high school, there were groups of kids, mm-hmm. but when it came to the jocks, right, the majority of the good football players were taking like AP calculus and like AP history, and they were towards the top of the class and all went to good schools and like a bunch of them became like engineers and stuff. And then there were the kids who ran cross country or ran track, but they also were sure. number two, number three, number four in the class. So yeah. there was definitely the groups of kids who were like the kids who got in trouble all the time, you know, who skipped class and stuff like that. And there were the kids who didn't play sports, but there was never, like I still distinctly remember a lunch table that I sat at, I think when I was a junior in high school. And it was a random, like it was, if you were to basically put the breakfast club together, that's yeah. the people who sat at the lunch table together by happenstance. And it became one of those things where we all just kept sitting at the same table. And we really didn't hang out with each other outside of that lunch table, but we talked to each other when we were there. And it was, we were like friends at that table. Not that we talked about each other behind each other's backs or things like that, but we're, it was just kind of like a weird thing, I guess. So we were kind of like the lunch club. No, just kidding. We yeah, weren't well, that cool. So... <laughs> Why is this called the Breakfast Club and not the Lunch Club? They yeah. don't eat breakfast, but they do eat lunch. Yeah, and or why isn't it called like the Detention Club or something like that? I think it is a weird name because the I was thinking of that as you're watching the movie. I'm like, why is it called the Breakfast Club? And then at the end, he's like, Sincerely yours, the Breakfast Club. Is it only because they got there at like 7 in the morning? I guess. I still don't understand. To me, the name of the movie makes no sense whatsoever. It's a cool sounding name. Yeah. But other than that, I don't, I think it's one of the worst titled movies in terms of like what happens in it. Cause you really don't, you don't get it. It really, the breakfast club really sounds more like some type of, you know, movie that's kind like of the like the Sandlot or something. Like it sounds like a, well, not like the Sandlot, but I imagine it being a movie about with like Diane Keaton or something like that. And it's a bunch of like women who go out for brunch on Sundays, you know, that, that to me, that's kind of the first wives club. Or that, something so like, yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> That's well, that's when I when I feel like the Breakfast Club. That's the type of movie I would expect with that type of title. So I I don't know what I would title this movie, but I would not call it that. When they're eating lunch, Ali Sheedy's character has a sandwich. She like throws lunch meat off of it, and then she starts adding these like sugar packets and like Captain Crunch and all this other stuff, and makes it into a sandwich. Yeah, that which would be might gross. be. It's kind there of was like mayonnaise on that too, which right, which kind of makes it a club sandwich. No, made no, of no. breakfast materials. A club, club sandwich has so to have three a pieces of bread. Club. I think a club sandwich has to have three pieces of right, bread in right, it to right. be a club sandwich. So, just saying. I, I was trying to make a connection there, but uh, you're always trying to make these ridiculous <laughs> connections. Well, it's it's uh, John Hughes. Like maybe that was you know hidden gem in the movie that you had to pick up on, like sixteen candles. Yeah, there's sixteen candles at the very end of the movie on the birthday cake. Yeah, but the movie's about her. 16th birthday the whole thing and how like people forgot it was her 16th birthday yeah but the candles the candles at the end yeah just like pretty in pink she doesn't wear the pink dress till the very end of the movie so i don't know going back to what you're saying too about how kind of like everyone changes and things like that it is interesting that sort of the big themes of the movie i feel like i always go into this movie thinking it's going to be a different type of movie but it ends (laughs) up being the movie like this really seen sad, the movie. like this really sad movie about these kids. But it's really one about how they all feel super pressured yeah. or disgruntled with their parents and adult figures, you know, each in their own. It's kind of representing a different sample of how teenagers are pressured. And I feel like nothing's changed. It would be interesting to see 
this movie be remade in 2018. Oh, yeah. And to see what that would be like in terms of their personality and perspective. Since this is sort of the the last like 10, 15 years has been the era of all of the reboots of movies (laughs) and remakes of old movies. One that was good that I saw recently was the, the remake of the Jumanji movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw... Well, was that, the original that wasn't really a remake, though, right? Well, it's supposed to be like a sequel, but it yeah. is kind of a re- you know, it is a reboot of that type of franchise. Yeah. But I thought they did a really good job adapting it to today's audience. Right. And it was still a good movie and was able to not like be a... They took the script of the original movie and just tried to make it in today's world. But this would be an interesting movie, like because one, it would be dominated by cell phones. Right. And like, so would they have to put all their phones in a box and would the mission of the thing be trying to get their phones back yeah yeah would that really be versus like with that they're sitting at their desks they're in a library there's nothing for them to do other than destroy books well there were a lot of things in this movie situations and stuff like about the characters that you just would not do or see in a movie in 2018 definitely one the flare gun thing like yeah. that's that kid it, would have been expelled oh yeah of course the teacher threatening the kid probably not going to happen in today's world because the kid would just tell their parents and their parents would believe them. And in most cases, people would probably believe the kid over the teacher. Well, yeah, but but Vernon even, he has a line when he's kind of threatening Bender and says like, You threatening me? What are you going to do about it? You think anybody's going to believe you? You think anybody is going to take your word over mine? Honestly, I feel like in today's world, they would... Oh, they'd they totally be, go with the kid. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. I think watching this movie, we forget that these kids are like 15, 16, 17 years old. The well, kids. Bender has gray hair. I did notice that. <laughs> like, old... Although I knew someone in high school who had gray yeah. hair, so... I think I think Judd Nelson was the oldest of the characters when they... The oldest actor out of the five of them. Yeah. Did they ever make a play out of this? Because to me, this is uh, one I, of those yeah, films... Yeah, I think some high schools have done this as a play. It would be one. It would really be very easy to stage as a play. And oh, yeah. I think it is one of those movies that is essentially a play. It's just characters talking to each other. It's really pretty much one set, except for when they run through the halls. Right. And even taking the story and trying to make it in today's world, it's interesting that the movie is held up this long when it literally is just kids sitting in around in a library talking to each other. Right. And there's really not much action that goes on. Yet, it still kind of remains like a poignant film. At some point, you, you find one of the characters, like you said earlier, like most people right. identify with, with uh, Brian. Well, you're there like, oh, yeah, been there, done that. Maybe not to the extreme that the characters are, but I think anyone in high school has felt pressure from their parents to be good at grades, be good at sports, yeah. or in a situation where their parents are abusive to them or don't even know that they exist. Yeah, you could probably say that a lot of kids relate to different parts of all of these characters. You can have parents that ignore you for the most part, but then also have high expectations on you as well. Or Claire's character, whose parents are kind of using her as leverage to fight each other, and then maybe also have an abusive parent like Judd Nelson's character. So you can take pieces of all of their lives and say like, yeah, I relate to this character, but I also kind of relate to that in the other character. And again, I think that's why by the end of the movie, you're kind of rooting for everybody because there's a little piece of all of them that you could feel in your own life. Yeah, and I think those kids are at the real, like they're at the point in their life when they're about to become adults. Yeah. You get that realization that, you know, especially if it's in a situation where they're like looking at their parents and they don't like their parents, mm-hmm. they're like, oh crap, 
am I going to be, they say that, like, are, are we just going to end up like our parents? Yeah. You know, they also say about their, oh, like, no one's home life is satisfying. Even Vernon kind of has that realization while he's, him and Carl are talking. When he got into this, he did it because he wanted to work with students. And now here's him grown up, really. And he, he hates it. He hates the students. The only reason he likes going to work is to punish them. Right. And he seems miserable. Yeah. I mean, he's looking back at his own life, and I think you kind of see that on his face by the end when he's getting up to go let them go, even though they're already gone. He kind of seems defeated, realizing, like, this is what my life has become. Yeah, I think, to me, the most interesting theme of the movie is played out with the song that bookends the film, the Simple Mind song, Don't. Don't you forget about me? Right. If you think about every character, it's really, Mm. from like a Vernon perspective, he talks about, oh, yeah, he was the teacher and the kids, uh, they don't even respect him anymore. These kids turned on me. Come on. Listen, Vern, if you were 16, what would you think of you, huh? Hey, Carl, you think I give one rat's ass what these kids think of me? Yes, I do. Now, this is the thought that wakes me up in the middle of the night. That when I get older, these kids are going to take care of me. And they're going to be running the country, and I'm going to be old, and they're going to be taking care of me. And Carl says, I wouldn't count on it. Right, exactly. But then you also have Carl, too, who was man of the year, big man on campus, and in that high school, and now he's the janitor, and who remembers who he is. And even each of those kids, too, it's not necessarily how they're going to, you know, the idea of, like, being forgotten about, but it's they're being forgotten, in some cases, by their parents. Doesn't the principal... After he brings Bender back to the group and he's like yelling at them in front of, he's yelling at Bender in front of the group. He says something like, you want to see something funny? You go visit John Bender in five years. You'll see how goddamn funny he is. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the whole point. Like it's that realization of, and also too, maybe further in high school saying like, this is a moment in our life. Does it really matter that much? Like in a few years, people will forget about us. Like we won't be here. You know, think about if you go back to your high school now, like, who's going to be there and who's going to remember who you are? Very few people. Well, even come Monday, are they going to forget each other and go back to their own lives? Yeah. I think that's the other idea, too, when, when it plays out at the end. Are, are they still going to be friends on Monday? Is, you know, all the relationships they build, are you going to, you still going to remember me on, on Monday, who I am? I think some of the other problems with making this movie in, in 2018, by the way, we're recording this in 2018. So the principal has, in his office, he's got like a swimsuit calendar hanging on his wall. Yeah. Like, what? I mean, it was the 80s. I had a gym teacher, so not the same, but I had a gym teacher, and she had a very provocative picture of Patrick Swayze like laying down, posing in her office. Hmm. And another one of Tom Cruise. Yeah. I feel like definitely not appropriate in no. a school. Not really. Not appropriate in an office. Not, no. Not appropriate in the school. And uh, I mean, he's also drinking beer in the basement with Carl. So who got the beer there? Carl, clearly. If he's the janitor of the school on a Saturday, figure that he's probably usually there by himself. Yeah. Why not? He doesn't care. I think that's kind of cementing who his character is. If anything, he's probably like the Andy character in this film. He's the fleshed out stereotype of an athlete, like a washed out high school athlete who he was the biggest deal there was in high school, and outside of that world, he is absolutely nothing. He's the like used car salesman, you know, who doesn't leave the hometown, who goes back every Friday night to every football game. Right. 
right. you know, at 50 years old. The only other thing I would say that is not, you cannot do in a movie in 2018 is all of the derogatory terms kind of thrown around in this movie. Uh, I, I still think you could do it. It would just mm. be, I think they would have a different, they would mean different things if they were being said now. You could still pull it off. It just would be a, it would change. I think people look at this movie and when this goes back again to, it's this movie that has this like seminal film that everyone is like, oh yeah, it's this like perfect 80s movie. It encapsulates what it's like to be a teenager and go to high school, and I, which I don't think it really does at all. But it's a pretty dark film. Like it's a serious oh, yeah. movie. And I think that's the difference if you would think it'd be making, it would be, it would be like a 10 Things I Hate About You or a Mean Girls or something like that. But it, it wouldn't be. It would be more like a, 13 Reasons Why, like that Netflix miniseries that was like yeah. really intense and like overly graphic. Right after they meet in the beginning and, and uh, Vernon leaves them alone for the first time, Bender's kind of suggesting that they rape Claire. Hey, homeboy, why don't you go close that door? We'll get the prom queen impregnated. Yeah, that was, uh, was kind of messed up. I did catch that and I don't remember that from... The movie there is definitely a lot of that, yeah and it's supposed to almost be like a joke no i don't think it's a joke i think it's him just pushing trying. his limits yeah, yeah. i think he's he's good at trying to mentally mess with people and i think he was trying to set up like don't f with me in this today like i'm the guy who will kill you type of thing and but, i think that kind of sets his character up and they kind of break him down from there i feel like you wouldn't make a movie about high school kids nowadays and have that in if if the character said a line like that now, I feel like that would be way way darker than it was at the moment. Yeah, agreed. And then even Vernon, when he comes in, I think to tell them it's time for lunch, he calls the whole group girls. All right, girls, that's thirty minutes for lunch. Here, here. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, there's a lot of that like that's there. I think what on a separate thing that's not a series. He calls um. Earlier in the beginning of the movie, he calls Ryan. You're a neo maxi zoom dweeby. Oh, yeah. I don't know what that even means. Uh, they just made it up for this movie. Oh, okay. I believe so. I, I'm pretty sure I saw that in the, uh, in the bonus features. Some other cool things in the bonus features. The library that the majority of this movie takes place in. So the film itself was shot in a high school. It was a, uh, like a closed down high school that wasn't being used anymore. But the library was actually, they built that library for this movie inside of the gymnasium in the high school. Huh. I mean, it looked like a legit library. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty nice library for a high school. Yeah, I mean... That would explain the huge ceilings. Right, yeah. And, uh, like, there's a couple, like, jumping around on furniture and stuff where I'm like, oh, if I was a student, I would not have hung on to that staircase the way Judd Nelson's, like, climbing up. That would just snap off. You'd, like, fall down. But knowing that, I don't know, they constructed this set just for like these things to happen they could like reinforce certain things and i don't know i mean if you if they build a stairwell like that that you're supposed to walk up why wouldn't you jump up on something like that it wouldn't fall apart but he like jumps up on the side like outside of the staircase like a like a monkey climb i mean it. it's a building they would have constructed it to hold people uh, i don't know i think more so that i don't know that i would pick a book up and rip the cover off of it and rip all the pages out or like you know i mean he literally well, just like trouble throws he has a lot of destruction, though, like yeah. to a point that's a little ridiculous. I think uh, in the deleted scenes, there's also some more scenes with that weird statue in the in the middle. Oh yeah, that was kind of a weird. I feel statue. like somebody tries to climb it, and then there's a scene where like Anthony Michael Hall is like bowing down and worshiping it. 
I think it was like when they were all high. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like what was interesting with, with this movie was all of the um, musical montages that happened to kind of yeah show the passing of time. You know, we talked about the dancing scene earlier, but kind of the Mio Estevez's little like crazy almost like he was doing lines of cocaine instead of smoking pot and he just like runs out of a the foreign language room that's completely you know engulfed in smoke right and they're playing uh fire in the twilight by wang chung right he's running around the whole thing and then he screams it's not like a high-pitched scream oh yeah and the glass shatters like what (laughs) that almost seemed like cartoonish it it seemed out of place in this movie yeah that was one that was a little far-fetched to me also, the other thing that to me that was far fetched was Judd Nelson dunking. Oh yeah, he was he was really good at basketball. He's dribbling under his legs. Yeah, he was he doing dunked. like crossovers and stuff, and then he straight up dunked. Yeah, it's like like that's that didn't that looked like based on his height that looked like it was a ten foot net and he dunked. That's pretty impressive. Well, and he tells the principal like, "Out, that's it, Bender. Out, it's over. Don't you want to hear my excuse? Out. Thinking of trying out for a scholarship." Give me the ball. I'm thinking, yeah, man, try out for the team. Like, you're good. Well, it reminded me of this kid in high school. I think I had, I think it was, I was a junior or a senior in high school. And there was this kid who had just moved, who had moved, I think, the year before. And he was kind of, he was a weird kid. He was always getting in trouble and, like, doing dumb stuff. But mm-hmm. then in gym class, he was swishing the ball from, like, half court. He was just shooting half court shots. We'd play, like, just, you know, mess around basketball in gym class. And he was, like, sinking three pointers, like, he was Stephen Curry or something like that. And the teacher was like, you should try out for the basketball team. Like, you're actually really good. The, the, the other thing that seemed a little unbelievable was Judd Nelson falling through the ceiling. Like, he fell a pretty long distance there and just kind of, like, bounces up. Yeah, yeah. He was kind of, he was just also crawling through, like, a drop ceiling. I'm surprised he made it that far. Yeah, I kind of want to know what the end of the joke was, too. He's, like, telling himself a joke while he's crawling. And then right before he gets to the punchline, he falls through the ceiling. A naked blonde walks into a bar with a poodle under one arm and a two-foot salami under the other. She lays the poodle on the table. Bartender says, I suppose you won't be needing a drink. Yeah. It was a, yeah. It was a weird joke. You could so always Google it. See, maybe you can put it in the show notes yeah. and you find out what the punchline is. Hmm. So besides the theme song of this movie and that Wang Chung song, I feel like in my head, I always remember there being a lot more iconic songs. There's not, though. I don't there's a, there's a couple. They play a We Are Not Alone. That's the dance montage. And then I'm the Dude by Keith Forsey. The part they have in this movie is just like a guitar solo. Right. I don't know if that's the whole song. No, I, I, I think really there's, it. it's definitely not. I think it's thought of as a song, uh, as, a, as a movie that has a lot of songs. Kind of like the Big Chill. Yeah. You know, it's thought of as like, oh, yeah, the best breakfast club soundtrack but if you actually were to listen to the soundtrack i think most people would be like what is this what are these songs because like these aren't they're not like radio hits aside from the um simple mind stuff yeah and what was interesting too was that uh they did um something similar that we talked about uh, i forget what movie we talked about that on was it election the idea of like using a song as the score for the whole movie I know I mentioned the movie Working Girl, where they used that Carly Simon song. Uh, And I don't remember what episode I was referencing that in, but it was just one of the last couple we did. But how at the beginning of the movie, like that was clearly instrumental. They're playing like the chords and the melody from Don't You Forget About Me, but it's not actually a clip from the song. They kind of like fade the music in from the song, and then it's like a synthesizer playing 
at the very beginning, after the, you know, in a couple of the first parts of the film as the characters are doing stuff, it doesn't really return until the very end of the movie. I felt like that kind of cemented the meaning of the song more into it. That song was just not picked as being like a hip song in the 80s, which it was, but it really had deeper meaning for the film. Judd Nelson is whistling, I think, or humming oh, Anagata yeah. DeVita, I think. Mm, I don't At think one it point, was Anagata DeVita. I mean, they're all whistling that. But before yeah. that, he was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's not Anagata DeVita, though. Mm. Oh, no, maybe it is. It is. Yeah. No, you're right. Like yeah. the verse. You're right. No, the, you're the right. Yeah. I, I think that's, again, like. Yeah, well, he was coming in the God DeVita, yeah. Everybody else is into, you know, the pop music of the time, and he's like kind of the rock edgy guy. Yeah, I feel like Judd Nelson have a pretty solid vinyl collection. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Allison, they show her at, at one point, Judd Nelson like throws a Coke can to her and she catches it. Product placement, by the way. Oh, huge product placement. And she's holding like a Prince album, I think. Really? I don't remember seeing that. She's just like holding it one hand and she lifts up her other hand and catches the Coke can. I think she made of, might have like taken it off the shelf in the library, like they had oh, records oh, yeah. that you could check out. And that was another thing I was wondering too. So clearly Anthony Michael Hall puts the music on when they're dancing around. Right, right. But when um, Emilio Estevez was running around, there was no music playing. Like he was just running around, right? Like that was not... Well, the, we're hearing music as the audience. Correct. But it didn't seem... I don't know. He might... Maybe, maybe it was like a best of record and it was switching from one band to another. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Man, it doesn't really matter that much. I think the episode of ours you were referring to was the from The Graduate with all the- Oh, like, yeah. The Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Garfunkel stuff. Yeah, yeah. And similar to um, when Harold met Maude. Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude. When Harold met Maude. That'd yeah. be, that'd when be Harry a great <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a good. When Harold met Maude, yeah. I guess- it, I mean, you could title it that. Be yeah. better than the title of The Breakfast, than the Breakfast Club. Then. Well, it would have more meaning. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, Don't Forget About Me would be a better title to this movie than- the breakfast club yeah that's true i think brian gets some of the best lines like quick throwaway lines and they're they're looking at his wallet and uh emilio estevez's character is like this is the worst fake idea i've ever seen you realize you made yourself 68 i know i know i goofed it what do you need a fake id for so i can vote yeah that was uh, i was laughing pretty hard from that i thought that was pretty funny like he he wasn't even he wasn't even being sarcastic. He was serious. Right. Like, <laughs> right. it's so I can vote. Right. Which would not let you vote anyway. Uh, maybe in 1984. But yeah, maybe back, back then. But not now. No. So I'm pretty sure Pretty in Pink. Well, 16 Candles, then The Breakfast Club, then Pretty in Pink. I think they came out in that order. And it was three years in a row. So Molly Ringwald, you're actually watching her. So if 16 Candles, she's supposed to be... 15 becoming 16, and I think she actually was 15 when that was being filmed. That means she should be like 17 turning 18 in The Breakfast Club, but I think she's a senior. Are they all supposed to be seniors? I don't know that that's... They don't go into that, but... I I guess you could say... You would hope Judd Nelson is a senior at this point because he's looking old. He might actually be... He probably got held back a year or two. Yeah, I I, I would make that assumption. I would guess that, well, it's March. I feel like they might be juniors because 
in real life, by March, I feel like someone like Andy would have already had a scholarship offered to him to go to school. So he's probably like a junior. Because mm. he wouldn't be, his dad was saying, you want to give, I mean, unless he yeah, already yeah. has one, but like, they were like, you want to get a ride, you know, because somebody, will, they'll take your ride away. Well, maybe he is, because he said they could take your ride away. So. So he's probably a senior. Maybe, yeah. And it seems like they're all in the same class, like same level that they would recognize each other. Yeah, I think they're all, I think they're all in the same grade. So, and, and I think in Pretty in Pink, I think Molly Ringwald is supposed to be a senior in that movie as well. Not in 16 Candles. I think that's like a junior. Well, she wouldn't be. She'd be a sophomore or a junior. Yeah, that, that movie's got issues too, because if she's turning 16 and she's trying to hook up with this guy who's like a senior, who I believe is at least 18 in that movie. Anyway, that movie had a lot of issues. But I think it's kind of interesting that she plays a very consistent character through each of those yeah. three movies, even though in real life she's aged three years in a row. I think it's also interesting that one director put out three movies of a very similar genre back to back. Like, who does that now? In a three-year span, that's pretty intense. I, I don't think you could even do it anymore. No. I, I just I don't know that anyone... I don't even know a director who's put out two movies back to back within two years. Yeah, I'm sure somebody has, but to also have them be pretty memorable and still watched, you know, so many years later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's John Hughes. Was he still putting out movies like towards the end of his, his life? Uh, I, th- I think so. Um, I'm trying to think of the one film that he did towards the end because he wrote this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. I know he did because he did so many like, you know, like Uncle Buck and, uh, and he did, we do plane trains and automobiles. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think he didn't. I think he stopped in like the 90s. Hmm. There, could have been wrong about the uh, the psych episode directing too. <laughs> but Were there any other uh, quotes you really liked from this movie? Uh, quotes? I mean, I feel like a lot I of like people... I like the eat, eat my shorts. Eat my shorts. What was that? Eat my shorts. Oh, and then that kicks off the like, two-minute monologue of him just getting more and more detentions. Not a monologue, yeah, but a back yeah. and forth. Are you through? No. I'm doing society a favor. So? That's another one right now. I've got you for the rest of your natural-born life. If you don't watch your step, you want another one? And I also liked kind of Andy explaining... I'm not a winner because I want to be one. I'm a winner because i got strength and speed. Kind of like a racehorse. And the, he's like saying that, like, I don't want to be a wrestler, but... My dad wants me to be. I'm I'm naturally good at stuff. I'm athletic, naturally athletic. Uh-huh. So I'm just put into these situations and expected to perform. And he says, I'm not I'm like a racehorse. Right. Which is I thought was really interesting. I think like you said earlier, you know, he's like the one is like kind of the one character who it seems remorseful about what he did and seems like he has the best head on his shoulders out of everybody. Right. Yeah, that that line kind of went right past me. Like I didn't, I didn't really pick up on like that's the point he was getting at that they're just kind of using him. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that. His parents are living vicariously through him. I think that's sort of saying it again from what we talked about earlier. I think it's a good sampling of high school that you could probably whether you personally fit in to one of the categories of those people, right? But you maybe had friends or knew someone else who was like the rich kid, and if you were maybe friends with the rich kid, you maybe knew that their parents were never around. Right. And they kind of actually wished their parents were around. 
or you have the kid who's always in trouble who comes from like a broken home where the dad's you know it's like really abusive the jock whose dad is pushing him till and he's living vicariously through his ability and yeah. the smart kid whose parents are just pressuring him to get really good grades who knows why whether it's because they're really smart and they got good grades or because they want something better for that kid and they don't know how and they want to not have to pay for college right and then the girl whose parents don't even care about that she exists I, that's why i also think the movie I think people remember it for the funny scenes and not for the intense scenes that that's in their mind when they talk about it. Like that's what they, when they like remember it fondly. But I think what makes the movie stick with people is that they identified with one of those characters and they like watching that movie maybe was a cathartic experience for them getting through high school or years later looking back thinking like, yeah, I was that kid. Yeah. Because there were so many other 80s movies that were just funny teen comedies, but they don't really get... Like Real Genius? Yeah, well, that popcorn scene, you know, that was that was pretty serious. One of the greatest 80s movies ever <laughs> made. It should be in the Criterion Collection. Uh, maybe it will be. Maybe. I would definitely recommend going out and watching Real Genius. I think you can watch it on Amazon Prime. If not, you should buy it from iTunes. That's uh, Val, Val Kilmer? Val Kilmer. A young Val Kilmer. And uh, I forget the actor's name, but he's the... Um, he's in... Die Hard Bruce and Willis. Die Hard 2, Die Harder. He's the redheaded, like the journalist who's kind of a jerk. I can't remember his name. He was really popular in the 80s. He was like, he was also in Ghostbusters. He was in Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2? Rick Moranis? He was in, no, not Rick Moranis. He was the guy who was arguing for them to shut down the huge thing that they had trapped all the ghosts in. So maybe it was Ghost, uh... the first Ghostbusters because it let all the ghosts out. Wasn't he that was the mayor? that guy. No, 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 no. The mayor was another guy. He was like a super Italian bald guy. This was this guy with like he had like red hair, mm-hmm. kind of always a jerk in every movie that he's. He always plays a jerk in every movie that he's in. Uh, we'll have a link to his IMDb page <laughs> in the show notes because I can't remember sure. what his name is. But well, either way, why not? Um, I don't have enough to do. <laughs> uh, but, what, uh, I think the other classic line I always heard from this movie is, "Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns." Yeah, that's a good line, too. And he, he makes that hand gesture a lot throughout the movie. Yeah. Even when he's just standing there and his hands are at, at his side, he's kind of, like, got horns pointing down. He has a lot of, like, angry lines for the kids. Yeah, I'm going to be cracking skulls. Yeah. Like, you can't be saying that to kids. I think he did. Bender doing an impression of Brian's parents was pretty good, too. That was kind of funny. Say, son, how'd you like to go fishing this weekend? Great, Dad. But then it turns dark when he does an impression of his own parents, ending yeah. with like his dad beating him, and then yeah. showing like not only beating him but beating his mom. Yeah, I I couldn't tell who was supposed to be getting hit there, but yeah, somebody. I think getting... he says, "You forgot, ugly, lazy, and disrespectful." Shut up, bitch! Who fixed my turkey pot pie? I feel like that's the first like intense scene in the film, where you're like, okay, this is more than just kids in detention yeah there were a couple scenes where i feel like you actually see bender showing like his real feelings there's there were only a few you see more towards the end but i feel like the very first time they're still in the library like downstairs and somebody mentions their parents oh it's claire she's talking about her parents kind of using her and he looks at her and he has like a serious question look on his face and he just says what do you like better what you like your old man better than your mom they're both screwed. No, I mean, if you had to choose between them. And it seemed like it just popped into his head. It wasn't like he was trying to get her angry. It actually seemed like he was curious. Then, of course, it goes, you know, off the rails, and he's, like, using that information to make her upset. Right. 
And then later on, when he gets locked in the closet by Vernon, and Vernon's like threatening him. Get on your feet, pal. Let's find out how tough you are. I want to know right now how tough you are. Come on, I'll give you the first punch. Let's go. And then he, Vernon like lunges at him like a fake punch. There's genuine fear on Bender's face. Yeah, he's just a kid. I, I, I think it's just again he's he puts on a show just like Andy sees through him right away. He's like, you're just acting tough. That's just like part of his image. Yeah. And then he clearly, like, after that whole um, impression of his parents and stuff, he kind of goes back and forth with Andy, and then he does, like, seriously get pissed off and walk away. Right. I think that's when he jumps up, up on, this, on the stairs and, like, kind of sulks for a little bit. Right. And I think even Andy realizes, like, oh, crap, no, like, that's really what his, what his house is like. Right. And even still, like, when Andy's talking about what his dad is like, he's like, oh, yeah, maybe our, guy, our dad should go, like, hang out or something like that. I think your old man and my old man should get together and go bowling. Yeah, that's the other scene where I feel like you actually see the true Bender. The first time they're all kind of getting high together, somebody says something and he kind of laughs at it. And it's like a genuine... Yeah. He, he, he laughs really at it was Brian, funny. like making that weird, like he, Brian makes that, he has that like weird accent and he says something and he kind of laughs at him. Yeah, that was a little questionable to me. I felt like, uh, I'm not sure who he, who he was supposed to be impersonating there. Yeah, I don't know either. I feel like it might have been a little racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. Again, 2018 probably changed some things for this movie but overall i mean yeah this movie holds up it's a solid film i think it's rated r it's got to be rated r i don't think it is it's probably rated pg-13 no they use the f word way too much for a pg-13 it's probably right i guarantee you it's rated pg get out of here no it's rated r it is rated, is it really yeah it's rated r pg you can't say that in a pg movie in 1985 i thought you might be able to yeah i guess it is huh yeah I guess kids that are at the age of these characters are probably ready to see it, but I think you get more out of it. I feel like I understand more about this movie now than when I first saw it. Yeah. And uh, I also, I mean, I don't have kids. You don't have kids. But I feel like as a parent watching this movie, you'd probably feel pretty bad thinking a lot of kids probably don't like their parents at some point in their life. And are their parents really as bad as they're saying? Or is this kids? pulling out the worst things about their parents and not mentioning anything good about their parents. They're all still in school. Several of them seem like they're well taken care of. Maybe not Jen Nelson's character, but I mean, their parents probably love them. Yeah, maybe. I I feel like they are extreme. In some cases, they aren't maybe necessarily the average kids experience in those different scenarios, but maybe the most extreme versions of each of the stereotypes Sure. It makes for a better movie that way. Well, of course. I mean, in any movie, you have to go to the extreme of a stereotype to really like pull it off. Otherwise, it's not that compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at Criterion on the Couch slash The Breakfast Club. Next time, we'll be discussing Watership Down. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. And just like Joe from San Diego did, you can send us a tweet, send us a DM on Instagram, comment on a post, send us a message on Facebook. Let us know if there's any movie in the Criterion Collection that you would like us to discuss, and we'd be happy to add that to our list. I'm Adam Urich with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.